The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. At this point, we have worked through 18 glorious chapters of Yahweh's salvation in the book of Exodus. The Lord has brought the people out of Egypt through mighty hand, and in that, he has shown how glorious he is. And that has been the purpose, ultimately, of all that he has done. And so now, we come to chapter 19, where he shows us fuller how glorious and good he is, but he does so in a way that is difficult for us to sometimes work with. He reveals his glory through the law. And so how should we think of God's commandments? How should we think of the law given to Moses, the Ten Commandments? How should we think of how that all makes sense? And that's what we're going to focus on today. So I admit it's a meteor sermon, and perhaps some are. But if you have notes with you this morning, there are three big questions that we'll try to answer, and here's what they are. The first one is God's gift of his loving law. Is the law good or bad? And I'll give away up front, I'm going to argue that the law is good. Okay. Then we're going to look at, okay, if the law is good, if that's true, why do we tend to have bad connotations with it? Why do we struggle or push against God's commandments, especially the ones given here, the 10? And then I'll try to deal with that from two vantage points, how those outside of faith in Christ really struggle with the law. But then even those who have faith in Christ may struggle with the law but ultimately ending with the law's good intention. Okay, so God's gift of the law will argue the law is good. Then why do we struggle thinking that it's bad? And that'll be essentially the sermon this morning. So the title is God's gift of the law. We'll look at Exodus 19 primarily. We'll dip our toe into chapter 20, which we'll spend more time on, Lord willing, in subsequent Sundays. And if you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 71 and 72. So you'll want to turn there so you can follow along in Scripture as we look at God's law. Now, like I said, we're going to spend most of the time in chapter 19, but will you please first look in chapter 20 so that we remember the context in which God gives the law. So look in Exodus 20, verse 1, and God spoke all these words saying, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then the Ten Commandments follow that declaration by God. I show you that to tell you that context is crucial. God has given the law to people he has already redeemed, people he has already rescued and saved, and people he has already set his love on. So one of the ways we could show that the law, in fact, is good and not bad is that the law is given after God redeems and rescues and saves. So look now in chapter 19. This is the chapter we'll spend most of our time in. We'll begin with the text that was already read, chapter 19, verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. So the text is reminding us this is three months to the day that God has rescued these people. So what he's about to give surely is not for their harm, but out of his love for people he has redeemed and rescued. Now, if you look with me in verse two, 
which tells us where they set out. Then they camp at the mountain. Let's pick up actually in verse 3. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to them out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. It's a beautiful way to describe what the Lord has done to rescue them. His salvation meant a bringing out, a lifting up on eagles' wings, but more importantly, a drawing close. Notice then that God has saved to bring people closer to himself. God is bringing Israel out of Egypt to bring him closer with himself. So what we see already in verse 3 and 4 is that God is given the law on the basis of his love for people that he's brought close, people who he's redeemed. Now look in verse 5 with me in Exodus 19, verse 5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. In verse 5, we know for sure that God is not saying this is how they will earn being his people. This is how they will experience being his people. They cannot earn being his people. He's made them his people through rescuing them. Therefore, the commandments that he gives are about how they experience living as his people, not at all how they earn the right to be his people. Verse 6, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, done totally by grace. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And then I want you to see their response. So we'll continue to read down in verse seven. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And the people, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So they've responded to the Lord's grace and the gift of the law with the statement, we will do what you say in the law. So I'm first just simply trying to prove that the law is good. It's given by a God who loves the people that he has redeemed. The reason I want us to know this is because it would be dangerous for us to start to think that God gives commands as an opportunity for us to, through our performance, earn God's favor. God does not give commands so that through our performance, we will earn God's favor. Our performance cannot earn God's favor. Recently, I've been reading the book, The Whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson, which one of you gave to me, and it's been an outstanding book. I'll quote it a few times today. Here's one of the quotes in the book. He writes, legalism begins to manifest itself when we view God's law as a contract with conditions to be fulfilled rather than as implications of a covenant graciously given to us. Perhaps you notice the word, therefore, in verse 5, it's very important that we understand this. God is not in a contract relationship. If you do this, then I'll do this. And if you perform this way, then I'll perform that way. God is in a covenant relationship. I've given everything. Therefore, experience that by drawing close in these ways. God is not in a contract with Israel, but in a gracious covenant. Now, one of the reasons we may not know this is because perhaps we don't know the biblical storyline terribly well. Let me try to explain what's happened before here in a brief flyover and how it shows that what's happening here is not an act of performance, but is a continuation of grace. In Galatians 3, Paul makes a fairly complex argument, but it's a very important one. 
Paul says one of the ways that we know that the law was not given so that we could earn salvation is because God made a promise to Abraham 430 years before he ever gave the law. And the promise God gave to Abraham was that God would give Abraham a special descendant, singular, not descendants, plural, but a special descendant, singular. And that descendant, through that special seed, would be all the blessings that would be enjoyed by the world. And then Paul explains that that blessing was given through Christ. But just to help sure we don't miss it, God does something in Genesis 15 with Abraham to show that this is given by a promise of grace, not by performance through the law. And here's what God does. What God does is so strange that if you've ever read it in the Bible, it's probably one of those weird parts that you skip over. There's all these animals and God rips them in half. Do you know this part? And you're thinking, what is going on here? I think I'll keep reading. I don't know why animals are being torn in half. Here's what's happening. Today, if you are in a relationship where you sign an important document, perhaps you're co-signing on a vehicle for your daughter or something like that, you sign the bottom in the presence of witnesses. And that's how you show that you're making a commitment to that being fulfilled. What God does in Genesis 15 is remarkable. He rips these animals in half because it was a cultural way of saying whoever doesn't keep this promise should be cut off just like these animals are torn asunder. And then Abraham surely would be thinking, okay, the animals are torn in half. They're laying down an aisle. And I guess it's Abraham's turn to walk down the aisle. But Abraham never walks down the aisle. In Genesis 15, the only person who walks in between these torn up animals is God because God alone will fulfill the promise. Now, what Paul says in Galatians 3 is, why then would we think the law could annul, could dismiss what has come through promise, not through performance? See, when we come to the law, we tend to think, oh, now these are rules that if I keep them, I can somehow secure something. No, no, only God walked down the aisle. So what he does here 430 years later with Moses does not annul or dismiss that. In fact, its purpose is to show how he will be the one that walks down the aisle again. Because what the law shows us is that we need someone who can keep it. And that someone won't be us. Once again, someone will walk down the aisle. And if you're thinking, Josh, how do we know from the law that we can't keep it? Well, if we kept reading in Exodus, we'd find out that the law isn't just the Ten Commandments. It includes the sacrifices. It includes the Passover. When God brought Israel out of Egypt, he said the Passover would be the meal that they would enjoy. And now he gives them the specifications of the Passover because it's it's as if he's given them the law and saying... Here's how we ought to live, but here's sacrifices because I guarantee you won't live this way. And the sacrifices will only be fulfilled by my Passover lamb, by the lamb of God. So the law is not a bad thing. The law is a gift of grace to show us what God himself will do. It doesn't come in an if relationship, but a therefore relationship. I'll quote Mark Strom. He says it this way. The Lord did not give the law to establish his relationship with the Israelites. He gave it because he already had a relationship with his people and wanted them to learn how to express it faithfully, which he alone could fulfill. So here's a first question for us. When we think of the law, do we think of it as good or bad 
because we think of God as good or bad. All right, in the Garden of Eden, the original temptation, what Satan was able to successfully do is divorce a command from God from the character of God. Remember, Adam and Eve were created and given everything, and yet God gave one prohibition, one command. The Lord said, don't touch this particular tree. Satan came along and was able to tempt them by saying, God must not really be good. If God was good, he would let you have everything. God must not really love you. In fact, maybe God is jealous of you. Maybe God is afraid of you. Maybe that's why he doesn't want you to touch the tree. You see, Satan was able to successfully deceive them into thinking, God's not really good. That's why he gives prohibitions. You know how Adam and Eve should have responded to that temptation to Satan? They should have said, wait, you're saying God's not good? You know, a few days ago, I was the dust that I'm walking on right now. And she was one of the ribs that I had over here. And we've named all these animals and none of them fight us. And we're allowed to have everything other than this one thing. He must have a very good reason for telling us not to touch this one thing. I want to encourage you to consider today, are you starting to think that any of God's commands are actually bad? Have you started to believe that anything God has to say isn't good? Have you started to think that God maybe isn't good and that's why he's given restrictions? The Bible says we ought to feel the opposite about God. Psalm 119 verse 68 says, you are good and all that you do is good. Teach me your commandments. This is the heart of someone who knows the Lord. Anthony Salvaggio writes this, often we as Christians take the Ten Commandments out of their original context because we encounter the commandments as excerpt material in our church bulletins or on a plaque on a wall. Have you noticed as Americans, because we tend to think of the Ten Commandments as hanging somewhere in a courtroom, we tend to forget they were given by a God who would just redeem people and love them. Here's why I think that matters. The law is not a thing. The law is not a thing. Law is further revelation of a person. The law is not a thing. The law is revelation of a person who's about to meet them on this mountain and show them better who he is. If we hate the law, we're rejecting not a thing, we're distrusting a person. So what do you think that person is like? I fear that there are many ways that we confuse how good God is. I'm, I'm really thankful for the fact that some people go to school for a lot of years and they become biblical archaeologists or cultural sociological historians and they learn helpful things about ancient time periods. That's a great thing that they do that, but you can tell I'm building it up because I'm about to <laughs> critique, critique it. It's a great thing that they do that, but all that being said, here's one of the things that they do that I really, really hate. They come to us and they say, you know, I've been doing some historical research and I found that this used to be the case in this period. So this is how you should think about the Bible. Friend, it actually should go the exact opposite direction. You should say, here's what the Bible says. Therefore, that's how I'll think about this time period. Here's an example of how they get this wrong. And I learned this when I was in seminary. I was told, well, Josh, in the ancient Near East, there were suzerain and vassal 
covenants. A suzerain was someone who led an army. And when he conquered an army, he would then have the vassals keep requirements or expectations from him. And so that's what's going on in the law of Moses. It's just a suzerain who conquered vassals and now they have to pay him tribute through obedience. Is that what the Bible teaches though? Did he conquer Israel? Did he coerce Israel? No, he rescued Israel and he redeemed Israel all at his own doing. See, the Bible is not actually a book about God coercing or conquering people. It's a book about a creator who is gracious to people who have rejected him. And we should see this in the passage because in verse 4 of chapter 19, God says he carried them on eagles' wings. In verse 5, when he says, therefore live a certain way, he's not telling them to earn something or establish something. He's done both. So Wellman Gentry are helpful when they write this. The creator God has chosen to display favor and kindness to Israel and has acted in history to redeem them. And a lot of misunderstanding has happened by contrasting the old covenant in terms of the new as making it law versus grace. But this text is clear. The old covenant was also based on grace. See, God is good. His whole word is good and his law is good because it's a revelation of him and God never does anything that's not good. So why give the law at all? Well, if you have the notes that I sent out this this week, I have that in blue, this blue line. Why give the law at all? And if you want me to, I can email you my my summary. I I have five answers that I've come up with. Why give the law at all? First, I want to make sure you understand the question that I'm saying. Why give the law at all? Remember, Adam and Eve had two children initially. They had Cain and Abel, the first two children that were born. And what did Cain do? Cain murdered his brother Abel. And when God came to Cain and said what he did was wrong, Cain did not say, it's wrong to murder somebody. You should have written that down somewhere. I didn't know that. He didn't say that because the law is written on our hearts, Romans 1 and 2 says. So even if God did not reveal the law in Exodus 20, he had revealed the law in many ways in terms of instructions he gave to Adam and Eve, instructions he gave to Abraham. He told people how to live and even the people he didn't tell specifically, even people today who've grown up without ever reading the Bible, begin with a general sense of right or wrong, which we call the conscience. You can rewire it, you can suppress it, you can warp it, but everybody has it. So why give the law at all? And here are my five answers. The first reason is God gave the law for his glory. God gave the law for his own glory to show who he is. Now look at that in Exodus 19. Let's continue reading. Here's the setting in which God gives the law to show his own glory. Verse 9, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. I will let them wash their garments and be ready for me on the third day. So God's coming is so important. It's so glorious. They have to set themselves apart for his even coming to Mount Sinai. Let's pick up when he comes. Exodus 19, verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. 
The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled, the mountains trembling. Verse 19, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Verse 21, and the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. One of the first things the law does is shows us that God is so glorious that he actually could not be approached by those of us who are not glorious. God is perfectly holy. He's perfectly other. He's entirely just and right and good. Verse 21, by the way, is not a punishment. It's not like if they break through and look, now God's going to have to kill them. It's just a result. If you see the glory of God unfiltered, you die. It just shows how glorious God is. So the first reason God gives the law is to show what he is like, that he's perfect. The second reason God gives the law is because he's actually forming a nation here. So these are people that before were wandering as exiles, but now here at Exodus 19, they become a nation. Bruce Waltke is helpful. He writes, at Mount Sinai, Moses mediates God's word, sealing God's covenant relationship, defining Israel as a nation set apart from other nations. So here, Israel is set apart. Here's a third reason God gives the law, as a foretaste of future glory. Verses 16 through 19, we see a thick cloud and thunder and rumbling. But one of the things that God will do in the law is give a foretaste of what ought to be but can't be yet, a foretaste of his son. In the law, think of how we read about the Passover. We read about the Sabbath and Colossians 2 says that these things are a shadow of the substance that would come. The fourth thing we see, I think, about why the law is given at all, I think God gave it to show us that he gave it in a covenant of grace. This is why 1 Timothy 1 verse 8 says, the law is good if we use it lawfully. The fifth reason, though, that God gave the law, I think, is to show the law's weakness, the law's inadequacy. Um, I don't know if you have these at home or if you had these growing up, but at home growing up, we had a big wooden board that our parents would use to keep track of the height of our children. And so as the kids are growing up, they get out the big board and maybe on their birthday or some special event, you put a line as to how tall they are. And I heard someone use this illustration regarding the law. I think it's very helpful because I have, I'm reminded often, I have a lot of kids at home. And when they gather around and we have that wood board out and you find out who's tallest, the first thing they do is then they fight with each other. I'm taller than you. No, you're taller than me. Well, I'm going to be taller than you next year. And that's essentially what the law does. The law shows you what you are at a given moment, but it gives you no power to grow. So the law can't make you any taller. It can't make you any better. It just shows you what you are at that moment. So the law, let me quote Blaise Pascal in his really helpful work, Ponce. He wrote, the law imposed what it did not give. Grace gives what it imposes. So one of the things the law does is it's like as an adult, when you go to a scale and then you see what you are and you're like, oh, it's probably because I had my coat on, <laughs> you know, or whatever. But it tells you something you don't want to know. And it gives you no power to change it. None. And actually learning that is hurtful. That's what Paul says in Romans 7. He says, what, what shall we say? That the law is sin? No, the law is not sin. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. 
I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But then when he says in verse 8, is amazing. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced all kinds of covetousness. That's amazing. I didn't know what it was to covet. The law said don't covet. Then I really started coveting. That's what the law does. It shows you what you are. Here's your height. You don't like it? What can you do about it? Nothing. The law will do nothing to help you. Nothing. That's not because the law is bad. The law shows us God. It's just because the law hurts because the law shows me me. So don't miss that in Exodus 19 and 20, they're not interacting with a thing. They're interacting with a person, a person who's descending on the mountain. And this is one of the rare times God speaks out loud. And out loud, they all hear God say the Ten Commandments. We'll spend subsequent weeks on them in detail. Here they are in overview. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Nothing ever in your heart should take the place of God. The second commandment, you shall not make any idol or graven image. You're not allowed to rebrand God. You're not allowed to make anything else that takes his position or earns his trust. The third commandment, not to take God's name in vain, which includes using his name flippantly, but also means not trusting in who he is. The fourth commandment, not to break the Sabbath, but to keep it holy, meaning that we must rest in God's provision. And one of the ways we show that is through a rhythm. The fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, means to trust and obey them appropriately as you're under the roof, but also then to honor them as they age, to always respect them in your heart and mind. The sixth Do not kill. Jesus explains is homicide of the heart even. The seventh, do not commit adultery. Jesus explains is lust in your heart. The eighth, do not steal. The ninth, do not lie. The tenth, do not covet. To covet is to want what someone else has and think they ought not have it, but you ought to have it. Now those ten commandments alone would be enough, hopefully, to show us what we really are, as painful as it is. See, what actually happens at the law is they see something that shows them what they wouldn't want to otherwise admit about themselves. Can I show you that in Exodus 20? After they were given the law, look in verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, this is Exodus 20, verse 18. And the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Now, did you catch that in chapter 19? God said, set a boundary because they may want to come up. And then if they come up, they're going to die. In chapter 20, they hear God talk and then they're like, yeah, we'll stay back here. We'll stay with what happened. What happened that in chapter 19, they may have curiosity. And then in chapter 20, they're running away. What happened? They heard the law. They heard the law. And the law shows us what we are. Recently, Steph and I were on vacation and we were staying somewhere else. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but when you are in a different bathroom with different lighting, you see yourself differently. (laughs) And I told Steph, I have lost a lot more hair than I thought I, I had lost. This new lighting is showing myself to be different than I look in my home mirror. See, what's happening in Exodus 20 is before they're like, we're pretty great. We're going to break through and see God. And then God says, here's who I am. And then they run away and say, Moses, you, you go talk to him. We don't want to do that anymore. That's what the law always does if it's properly understood. One of the reasons we don't let the law hurt is because we don't take it seriously. 
on Wednesday, the group I was praying with, uh, one of the guys I was praying with was reading about Martin Luther's life. And what he shared was so perfect that I got it and read it this week. It was outstanding. Martin Luther, you probably know, uh, a monk from about five centuries ago. And when he went into the monastery, he had first come out of a career in law. And he had a really good mind for law. But then he survived a lightning strike and he thought, uh, maybe I should use my life to devote it to God. And so he went into a monastery. And in the monastery, he started to study the law of God. And as a Catholic, he went to confessional. And as a monk in the monastery... He was spending four, five, six hours per day in the confessional booth. I don't know if you've been to Catholic church. I don't know if you know much about confessionals, but if you go over two or three hours, I think you and the priest have to switch spots at that point because he's mad at you, I think. I mean, six hours a day. What could you possibly do in the monastery that cost you six hours in confessional every day? And the answer is Luther actually understood the law. The law is not asking you to be a little bit better. The law is not asking you to try harder. When Jesus was in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, verse 20, he said, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and the Pharisees had 631 commandments memorized. Some of them kept them on their hands and on their head. They knew the law. And Jesus said, you have to exceed them if you want to have heaven. How can you exceed them? You'd have to be perfect. Perfect. See, the law actually requires everything of you. And we hate that. And we hate that. And so you know what we do? We try to redefine it. I described it this way before. It's like going to see the doctor and he gives you an MRI scan and the scan clearly shows that you have spots that might be cancerous. And you're so mad at the scan that instead of accepting that it's reality, I think there's two common ways to respond to that. One of them is what I call to prance, to just say, you know what, I don't care what the scan says. I'm going to deny it. I'm going to live how I want to live. That's how the prodigal son responded. But the other is to say, you know what? I think the scan is not quite accurate. Actually, I think I'm really pretty good. I think, I think you're taking the scan too seriously. I think the scan is being given too much weight. And then you can pretend by moving the goalpost of the law till it's manageable. But you ought not let the law do that. Let the law do what it's intended to do, to show you I have no hope. I have to run away from the presence of God. And brothers and sisters, if the story ended there, it'd be a miserable ending. But praise God, God doesn't stay on the mountain. 1,500 years later, God will send his son down the mountain. You know what's amazing about that? Remember, if they just touched the mountain, they would die. But how does John describe Jesus in John 1 and 1 John 1? He said, we have seen the glory that which is from the Father in the face of Jesus Christ, and we have touched him, and we have handled him. And Jesus, after he died for lawbreakers and rose from the dead, Thomas said, I still don't believe. And Jesus said, touch my hand and my side. And Thomas didn't die because Jesus had taken his death. When I was in the hotel room, and saw how thinning my hair was and how white my beard was getting. Steph came over and put her arm around me and said, but I still love you. See, that's what God is doing. How else could he 
relate to us. He has to show us who he is. And of course, that's going to show us who we are. But praise God, he doesn't leave it there. He comes to us and embraces us. So now I want to talk to you as a Christian because I have been a Christian who have used the law unlawfully. I was saved, but I started to use the law unlawfully. Maybe you have too. I'm going to give you another list of five, five ways, even as a Christian, you could start using the law unlawfully. Christian, please hear me as a person who has sinned to my own harm in this way to these five. Christian, Christian, never use the law. Never use your performance to merit favor, acceptance, or to restore lost status with God. If it becomes clear to you through conviction that you've sinned, don't say, well, you know what, I'll make it better. I'm going to get it right. I'll do double what I did last month for the Lord. And then really, think about the prodigal son in Luke 15. The prodigal takes the inheritance early, blows it all. When he comes back, before he gets home, the father has run out to him. And the prodigal sends to the the father, oh, you know, I'll, I'll earn it. I'll be a servant for a while. I'll be a slave for a while. What does the father say? No, no, you're not a servant. You're my son. Christian, you are God's son. You're never his slave trying to earn your place in the house. You're his son. Don't treat him as if he's not your father. It is all too possible to have an evangelical head and a legalistic heart. You can say all the gospel stuff, but how do you feel about God? Do you think he's the father that loves and embraces you? Or do you think, well, if I could just do a little better. Christian, I also want to warn us as Christians. Sometimes we don't realize how legalistic we are until God's grace is given abundantly to somebody else. And then we're like, Lord, do you know what they did? I mean, you... You can't use them. You can't bless them. What did the elder brother say when the prodigal came home? The Bible says the elder brother was angry and refused to go to the celebration. His father came out. Did you catch that? The father came out to both of them. The father ran out to the prodigal and the father ran out to the elder brother. And to the elder brother, the father ran out. But the elder brother said, look, These many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command. You never gave me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came home, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, picking an extreme statement to show how bad the other person's sins are, but not his own, you killed the fattened calf for him. Christian, maybe the thing that shows that you have a legalistic heart is God's grace on somebody else. And then you find yourself saying, I should be experiencing that. I should be enjoying that. But hasn't God been good to you? Here's a fifth way I think even as Christians, we can start living in a way that uses the law wrongly. And here's the fifth one. We often talk about the moment we come to Christ as justification by faith. We put our faith in Christ We receive justification, and we often use the term sanctification to describe sort of the rest of the journey. But many Christians functionally believe that, okay, I believed in Christ, and that got me in. But now for the rest of the journey, it's kind of my performance. 
It's almost like someone who drives a NASCAR car and it's like, well, yeah, you guys bought the car and you put all the sponsors on it, but I'm the one that's really making sure that this all works. Or like someone who works for a law firm that paid their way through school, but then over the next 10 years, they earn partner status and now they're like, well, I have a 10% stake. See, Christian, it's actually never been your performance and it never will be. The whole thing is grace. God redeems you. He lifts you up. He brings you out. And even his loving guidance, he only empowers through grace. There will never be a day that you will say, you know, I kind of earned it. All we'll say is, worthy is the lamb. And one of the things that helps you know whether or not you think it's all of grace, can I give you a heart test thing? If you think there are things Jesus is not allowed to ask of you, then you think you're a junior partner who has earned some rights. If you think like there's some things that are off limits, then it's because you think, well, I have a 10% stake. So there's certain places Jesus is not allowed to get in my life. No, but we have all of him and he gets all of us because it's all of grace. Well, that brings us now to part Three, if you have the notes in front of you. So part one, is the law good or bad? I've argued it's good. Part two, why does the law hurt so bad then? And I argued because when we don't have faith in God, we see who we are in the law and that makes us recoil. But now I want to go a little further in part three. Why even as a Christian can I struggle with using the law unlawfully rather than it accomplishing its intended effect. And here's my first answer. I'll give you two parts underneath part three. So sort of a letter A and a letter B, okay? The first reason, the first side of it, why do we struggle against the law? Why do we use it unlawfully, even as Christians? And the answer is because we are saved sinners. We are saved sinners. So we are still sinners. There is still sin in us. And I know people have argued about what that means and how the flesh and the sin nature, all that works together. But the Bible is clear that even as a Christian, there is still sin within me. And that may cause me to use the law unlawfully. Romans 7 keeps on going in verses 14 through 25 to describe the Christian's plight. It it is so raw and so challenging that some people have dismissed it as possible to describe a believer, but we know it's describing a believer because Romans seven verse 22 says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. I delight in the law of God. Only a believer could say that I delight in the law of God. Yet I feel a war waging against my mind, making me captive to the law of sin. And if any of you are wondering, well, how does that make sense, Josh? How can you truly love someone? And yet at moments, just want to ignore them. If you're married, you know the answer. <laughs> you know? Because you know what it's like to truly love someone but have moments of, oh, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. And as Christians, we are saved, but we are saved sinners. And so there is still a battle in us that at times causes us to chafe against God. And then how do we fix that? That's what I'll conclude with. The answer as Christians actually is this simple, just like it would be with your spouse. You look to God who loves you and you remember to love him back. See, the Bible says we're never saved by performance, we're never saved by works, but we do read this in Galatians 5, 
verse 4. If you would try to be justified by the law, you'd be cut off. For in Christ there is no law, no circumcision or uncircumcision that counts for anything. But here's what does count. Faith working through love. So how do I relate to Jesus? As someone I love because he loves me. Which now enables me to keep the law. Charles Simeon put this together a few hundred years ago very, very well. He wrote, these poor men think they can preach the gospel without preaching the law. I say they must preach the law unless they do not mean to preach the gospel. The law entered that the offense might abound. Proclaim it for this purpose among even ungodly congregations of people. Lift up your voices like trumpets. Tell the people their transgressions so that you may glorify your honored master in proclaiming the infinite riches and fullness of his great salvation. Simeon concludes, to those who believe... Preach the law as finished, canceled, and dead for their salvation. Finished, canceled, and dead. Point them to Emmanuel holding it in his bleeding hand and saying to them, If you love me, keep my commandments. You see how those are not incongruous? The law is finished, it's canceled, and dead because Jesus holds it in his bleeding hand. And while holding it, he says, But if you love me, keep my commandments. And what empowers us to do that? What we think God is like. So in Egypt, God rescues the people. They're on the other side of the shores and they say, we're all going to die. We wish we could go back to Egypt. Then he rescues them again. And then they don't have enough food. And they're like, we're all going to die. Let's stone Moses. Then he gives them manna every day. And then he gives them rushing water. And then he provides quail. And then the Amalekites come and they're like, we're all going to die. Let's stone Moses again. And then God has Moses hold up the staff and he beats the Amalekites. And it's like, how many times can God show them, I love you and I'm going to take care of you. But we know this more fully because we have Christ. Christ who came and lived Perfectly keeping the law. He kept all of its commandments at all times in his heart, in his mind, in his actions, in his speech, perfectly. And yet, he was counted a lawbreaker and numbered among the transgressors, crucified in the middle of criminals in our place. Jesus bearing the consequences of law breaking death. And yet, Jesus then rises victoriously. So that all who believe in him not only are forgiven of their lawlessness, but empowered with a new heart out of which flows love for the God who loves them. And in that, we have the ability to live out what God's intention was. I think Peter put it really well in Acts 15. They were debating over what rules the Gentiles had to follow. And here's what Peter said. Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither we nor our fathers could bear. I love that. We couldn't keep the law. Our ancestors couldn't keep the law. Why are you going to try to make them keep the law? And then Peter said in verse 11, we believe we are saved through grace in the Lord Jesus, just as they are. See, Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. He's not abolished, but fulfilled the law that stood against us. When we see that, we have to see a father in heaven who loves us. Would you look at Exodus 19 again? I want you to look at a specific phrase so that you understand the way God feels towards you. Exodus 19, verse 5. Now, therefore, I want you to see the phrase, you shall be my, do you see it? You shall be my treasured 
possession. First Peter 2, these same phrases are used to describe all who are in Christ in the church. I wonder if you've ever thought about it that way, that, that God has made you his treasured possession. Last year I was at a conference with some guys from our church and there was someone there that I respect very much. I, I admit I'm a little bit of a nerd, but I really like Dr. Moeller a lot. And he was there speaking and when he got finished speaking, uh, the guy I was with from our church elbowed me and said, let's go up and get a, a picture with him. So we went up to get a picture with him and I walked up to him and I shook his hand and man, I just said, I'm just so thankful for the way that you're very faithful to the Bible and you gently and ironically uh, allow it to challenge things that are false that are happening in this world, but you do so with respect and appreciation for those to whom you're engaging. I'm thankful for the way you've led an institution for about 30 years uh, in such a tremendous way. I'm thankful for the way that you've availed yourself to people and shown us Christ. And then I much later realized that I never said any of those things out loud. <laughs> that actually, like a moron, I shook his hand and smiled and said, cheese. And that was all that actually happened. Because in my mind, he's such a great guy. I admire him so much that I didn't even have anything to say. And if he had conversed with me, and if he had said, Josh, let's go out to lunch, and we went out to lunch, and if Moeller had said to me, now, Josh, I've been listening to your sermons, and I've been following your ministry, and brother, stay faithful. You're really doing a great job. I mean, I would have fallen out of the chair, probably, because of what J.R. Tolkien says in The Lord of the Rings. He says, the praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. Isn't that true? Like, if you really admire someone, and then they really adore you, that's, God has made us his treasured possession. What is greater than that? God loves us in that way. See, Luther studied the law, and it made him not only hate the law, it made him hate God. And then he was translating Romans 1. How good is God that he's translating Romans 1 for classes that he was teaching in the monastery? And he read Augustine, and he read the commentary, but then he looked at the text. And here's what Romans 1 says in verse 17. The righteousness of God is revealed by faith. And the just shall live by faith. See, God's righteousness is something God gifts to anyone who believes in Jesus. It's not something that can be earned, but it's something God gives. Now the righteousness of God is not a bludgeon. It's a crown. Luther wrote, it broke into my mind and I realized for the first time that my justification, my station before God is not established on the basis of my own righteousness, which will always fall short of the demands of God. Rather, it rests solely and completely on the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which I receive through faith. And then Luther concluded, and when I understood that for the first time in my life, I understood the gospel and I looked and I beheld the doors of paradise swung open and I walked in. Have you? Have you? Have, have you seen the law by Christ fulfilled? Have you walked in through faith? Have you said, you know what? I know I'm a sinner, but in Christ, I'm God's treasured possession. William Cowper was a poet in the 1700s, and he wrote, How long beneath the law I lay, in bondage and distress, I toiled the precept to obey, but toiled without success. But then here's the refrain of the chorus. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice, 
changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. See, what happens when you see that God so loves you and what Christ has done for you and how Christ forgives you is now the law is no longer something that you hide from or recoil from. Instead of running away like they ran away from the mountain, you run to the Lord for grace in time of need because the veil is open. And the immense weight of the mountain, how could it not be weighty? It's the glory of God. Kabad is Hebrew for weight. Of course it's weighty. It shows us all that we ought to be, and we're not any of it. It crushes us. But now that crushing weight and its intensity is replaced by soaring joy with equal intensity in the forgiveness secured by Christ. So the glory that caused them to fear and tremble is now the glory of God in the face of Jesus, my Savior. And then the law is no longer a burden. First John writes in verse 3 of chapter 5, This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Let's pray together this morning. God, I thank you that the law is actually a gift because it is further revelation of you. And yet to know you is painful because that means to know myself. And like the bright lights of a hotel room showing me imperfections in my appearance, so the law shows imperfections in my soul. And if that was the whole story of the Bible, it would be miserable. But it isn't. It isn't. Because then Jesus Christ fulfills the promise All the way back to Abraham, all the way back to Adam, the special descendant came and he kept the law. And then he suffered for a lawbreaker like me so that I don't have to. And then in his bleeding hand, he holds it and says, you love me, keep me. So let us never allow Satan to do what he did to Adam and Eve and make us start to think, well, God's commands are bad or God is trying to hurt us. That is a lie. All that you do is good. All that you say is good. All that you are is good. So Lord, open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of even, yes, your law. Because in it we can see your son, the law keeper, And the Savior, the Lamb of God, bled for lawbreakers. This morning, Lord, perhaps someone needs to have Luther's experience and have the doors of paradise swing open and they need to walk in through faith, not performance. Help them to stop pretending that they have it all together. None of us do. Help them to stop acting like it doesn't matter. I'll just live how I want. Of course it matters. We have a creator but help them to come through the throne of grace, through the blood of Jesus, and find infinite supply of grace and mercy. Help them to believe and to soar with the joy that happens when we realize that Christ is everything. We pray that that would happen, Lord, even in communion. In your son's name we pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.